0: There are certain facts about the world that would be true even if there weren't sentient beings. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, finding meaning in a material world. How can there be meaning in a world that is ultimately nothing but gas and dust? Well, even though we're nothing but gas and dust, human beings still value things. That's the source of meaning. It starts in the nature
1: of the valuing beings. I heard a wise person say humans are value mongers. We create value Or existentialists would say we're thrust into the world as valuers. Our guest is Owen Flanagan, author of The Really Hard Problem, Meaning in a Material World. We're all much more aware now that we're psychobiologically and historically fragile beings, and our values are largely given to us without our rational consent,
0: and that should make us more humble. Finding Meaning in a Material World, recorded live on the Stanford campus as part of the continuing study series, The Art of Living. Coming up on Philosophy Talk... This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Stanford University campus. This program is part of the Stanford Continuing Study Series, The Art of Living. Our
2: thinking originates across the quad at Philosopher's Corner. That's where Ken and I teach
0: philosophy. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Today, meaning in a material world. Well, Ken,
2: modern science tells us that, sad to say, there are no souls, no transcendent God, nothing transcendent. The universe is dumb matter and energy swirling aimlessly through the void. We humans are nothing but temporary arrangements of such matter, gone and forgotten in the blink of the cosmic eye. What, then, is the point of it all? What's the meaning of human life? You want to tell me that?
0: Well, John, it's an urgent question, but you know, it's, I, I actually worry about this question because I, I fear that it may lead us into a lot of anguish, wailing, and gnashing of the teeth. So you're worried that maybe life has no meaning? Well, that, that I'm afraid, is part of it. Well, you're in
2: good company there. Kierkegaard says that if there's no God, life is nothing but despair. Dostoevsky thinks that if God is dead, everything is permitted. Even that strident atheist Nietzsche believed that once we reject God and see the universe as nothing but dust and gas, we need a total rethink of human existence.
0: Yeah, Nietzsche, Nietzsche predicted that once we follow Darwin's lead and turn the methods of science completely loose on what he saw as the human animal, we're going to end up torting just about everything, everything that makes us special, Freedom, morality, autonomy, self-consciousness, rationality.
2: Well, Nietzsche was pretty prescient. In fact, modern science, especially the science of mind, casts a great deal of doubt about our most cherished beliefs uh, and values and things we think about ourselves.
0: I am a huge, huge fan of science. But, But it's so hard to abide a science that says nothing to us but, you're nothing special. You're just a soulless, selfless hunk of meat. Give me science, but give me science that affirms life. Well, you've really imbibed
2: your Nietzsche. You've drunk your Nietzschean Kool-Aid, Ken. That's why you're so upset. He loved science, too, but he wondered whether, as he put it, whether science can furnish goals of action that it is after it
0: has proven that such goals should
2: be annihilated and taken away.
0: Nietzsche was a wise man, John. He recognized that in revealing the truth about ourselves and about the nature of the universe, science also threatens to leave us completely disenchanted.
2: But there's the rub. Why look to science to provide us with enchantment, with goals for action, with values, with
0: meaning in the first place? Because science got us into this mess. I mean, the least it could do is tell us how to live in this glorious new universe that's just so graciously bequeathed to us.
2: But see, I think that's a mistake. Science can tell us what is, and it can tell us what is not. But it can't tell us what to do or feel about what is or what isn't. Scientific questions are questions of fact, not questions of value. So, science
0: pulls the rug right out from under religion, and offers in its place, what?
2: A stony
0: silence.
2: Science isn't nearly as destructive of the sources of meaning and value as you seem to fear. Science undermines religions
0: and the spooky stories that they tell. Not to mention, like you said before, our notions of freedom, autonomy, the self. But it
2: still leaves lots of things standing. You still have art, you still have literature, things to read, philosophy, politics, morality. You still have intimate human relations, friendships, lovers, even
0: certain spiritual practices. Yeah, John, what's gotten into you? You sound uncharacteristically optimistic today. That's
2: because I think we haven't lost that much. The meaning of life was never really located in the things that science has taken out of the picture and progressively torched. Meaning isn't something we find or fail to find in the universe. It's something we make. Oh, come on.
0: How, how do you imagine that we do that?
2: Making meaning is a matter of what we do. What we do with what we find in the world. We find things like love and fairness, things that we value. We have visions of peace and the end-of-world hunger that we devote ourselves to, and that's what it is to make
0: meaning. I guess you think we shouldn't blame science but the limits of our imagination, right? Exactly. You've got it. You know what? Now you sound like Nietzsche. Embark, philosophers, he commands. Create new moralities a new justice and new meanings. And we're going to do just that.
2: And to help us, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, to talk to someone who finds fulfillment, and meaning in a world without God or the supernatural
3: on a recent Sunday a group of atheists fanned out across the country visiting about 20 congregations from Buffalo New York to Minneapolis Minnesota it was called interview an atheist at church day and it was organized by Kyle Jones a PhD candidate in religion at Claremont Lincoln University
4: the purpose is to start breaking down some of these walls that have existed for a long time between atheists and Christians, and to put a human face, to put skin on atheists, to humanize them so that some stereotypes are fought and that there's mutual dialogue and beneficial growth.
3: Kyle was a little worried the atheists might look down on the religious folks, or that the pastors might try to convert the atheists. So he came up with a list of questions to help kick off the conversation.
4: How does your atheism influence your day-to-day actions? How do you, as an atheist, understand morality? How, as an atheist, do you find meaning?
3: Number three got me wondering. How do you find meaning if all there is is what you see?
4: How do I find meaning? That's an interesting question because I don't find meaning. I experience things meaningfully.
3: Okay, so what does that mean? What even is meaning?
4: Yeah, just me- meaning is not something that you find somewhere. As if I go and I open up a treasure box and I go, wow, there's meaning. I've I've found meaning. Meaning is something that is part of experience. So if you're a human that can cognitively experience things in the world, you experience those things in a qualitative sense.
3: When we talk about meaning, it seems important to establish what we believe in. So I asked Kyle, what do you believe in?
4: I believe in being a good person. I believe in uh, the inherent worth and dignity of, of homo sapiens and higher primates. What I don't believe is in anything supernatural. I don't believe there are gods or a god or a mystical, magical force that permeates the universe.
3: But it wasn't always this way for Kyle.
4: At one point, I became a Christian for a couple of years in my late teens.
3: During his Christian phase, the idea of cosmic order, that everything happens for a reason, really appealed to Kyle. Best of all, every tragedy and positive event had purpose or hidden meaning.
4: Because it was all tied together under this grand plan, this scheme, this meta-narrative of God. So somehow even the worst things that happened were for God's glory and for my betterment, and the good things that happened were blessings from God. So it was all connected, yes.
3: But this phase only lasted about four years. At some point, he found it difficult to believe anymore, and he started asking questions, which is how he became an atheist who's also a PhD student in religion. I asked Kyle if his quality of life decreased after he deconverted, like if he became depressed in this huge, meaningless world.
4: Loss of happiness, not necessarily. What I did find was a troublesome adventure ahead of me, as opposed to a plan that I was fulfilling.
3: Kyle traded in his quest for meaning, for personal agency. And, he says, it's been liberating. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch.
2: Thanks, Caitlin, for that interesting talk with Kyle, the atheist who believes in meaning. I'm John Perry, here with my fellow philosopher at Stanford, Ken Taylor. And we're coming to you from the Stanford campus part of the continuing studies series, The Art of Living.
0: Our guest today is a professor of philosophy and neurobiology from Duke University. He's author of The Really Hard Problem, Meaning in a Material World. Please welcome to the Philosophy Talk stage, Owen Flanagan.
2: (laughs) Owen, we've known each other quite a while. I think of you as an analytic philosopher, trained pretty much like me. Now, most of us analytic philosophers are relentlessly focused on narrow problems. But you, you've written books about the meaning of life, the nature of dreams, and Buddhism, to name just a few. I find that inspiring, awesome. What moved you to apply your rigorous analytical training to topics that the rest of us are scared to tackle?
1: <laughs> well, uh, I don't think I had rigorous analytic training when I sort of chose my philosophical problems. I grew up as a uh, uh, in the nineteen fifties in New York in a, um, a devout Irish Catholic family, and uh, I think to this day that a lot of the, my philosophical interests in sort of what we consider big questions come from uh, being that boy, uh, now grown into a man, who learned some analytic skills along the way. So you're you're essentially a. Angst ridden
2: searcher for meaning and kind of contingently an analytical philosopher on top of that.
1: I guess that might be the way to put it. I, uh, yeah, like a lot of people, I, um, be, uh, when I be, reached puberty, I guess uh, maybe there were, it was overdetermined, but I, I started to lose faith. I started to go to 10 o'clock diner instead of 10 o'clock mass. <laughs> and uh, then various possibilities about there being no God, about life not being grounded in transcendent meaning possibility of the Dostoevskian idea that uh, if there is no God, then everything's allowed. That sounded good to the (laughs) the young man in me. So now, now,
2: a lot of theologians and philosophers, mostly theistic ones, but not just theistic ones, think that if there's no God, then we face this hugely difficult problem about the meaning of life. I'm not so convinced, but I'm curious as to what motivates the thought. So what, what do you think drives people to thinking that meaning can only come from God or some
1: other supernatural transcendent source? I think it's, um, uh, there are probably several different reasons, but one is certainly, I think, a cultural, a deep-seated cultural reason that has to do with the, um, with the Abrahamic traditions. I wouldn't just say it's Christianity because you see it in Judaism and Islam, but there's something uh, very appealing and I can see uh, uh, what it might be. Uh, there's the things that are disturbing about death and dying there are aspects of um, the thought of just dissolving back into the bosom of the universe and not going on. After all, death doesn't seem so hot. Being gone for all eternity uh, isn't the most appealing idea, at least to some people. And then you, <laughs> you put it into a certain tradition yeah. uh, uh, where we say, look, it, if it, it's not serious unless it's grounded in something like divine command or something. So it sounds
0: like you're saying, look, uh, the Abrahamic uh, religions, all these good things, if there is a god, take those things away, then you don't have any of those good things, right? Yeah. But, you know, there, there, in the West, there was like the Epicureans. and There were some people who thought, oh, we're just matter in motion, but the way to be happy is to realize that. Whatever happened to that thought?
1: I don't know. It's a good question, Ken. The uh, Epicureans, certain uh, parts of Aristotle that talk about botanical metaphors of human flourishing and fulfillment, you see it in Confucianism in uh, Eastern philosophy, and you see it in Buddhism to a certain extent. These traditions which don't have a grounding God, uh, an uber being who uh, who uh, decides on uh, the meaning and significance of life and on
0: morality. This is Philosophy Talk coming to you from the Stanford campus where we're searching for meaning with Owen Flanagan, author of The Really Hard Problem, Meaning in a Material World. Theists often say that if there is no God, then human
2: Life is without meaning or purpose. But is this really so? Is the only possible source of meaning God or something transcendent, or is it possible to discover meaning even in a merely material universe? Is meaning something we discover rather than
0: invent? Meaning, discovered or invented, along with questions from our audience when Philosophy Talk continues.
2: I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything
0: except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Owen Feinigan from Duke University, and we're talking about meaning in a material world. Is meaning something we have to go looking
2: for in the external universe, or is meaning something we invent? Are we each free to give our lives whatever meaning we choose? Does meaning have to be grounded in something beyond the self? Join the discussion by stepping up to the microphones at either side of the stage.
0: So, oh, and we were talking about where this thought that meaning has to be grounded in something transcendent comes from one thing that drives people to despair about the possibility of meaning and value in a merely material world is the belief that materialism couldn't possibly ground objective values or objective meanings. Now, I, I want to bracket for a second that worry about the limits of materialism, whether that's true or not. But I do wonder about something. Do you agree, or or do you disagree, that in order for values to be real and to be really important, they'd better be objective and not merely subjective? Yeah, I I don't think uh, the
1: idea that values are objective is a winning strategy uh, just because, I mean, there are certain facts about the world that would be true even if there weren't sentient beings, but if, uh, like what the ambient temperature is at this spot uh, right now, Value facts don't look like that. They look like to be either... Uh, some people would call them subjective. I'd rather call them relational, in the way that colors or tastes are relational. And some things, uh, because of the kind of animals we are, we value, you could say, from, because of our objective nature. Things like friendship, uh, health, warmth, and so on and so forth. Other ones are invented and created and discovered but, over world historical time, I think. But there's this thought,
0: right, that... Uh some people think science undermines meaning and value and more. Some people think that. Right? But science couldn't show that I don't value anything. That's right. But it might show, well, there aren't any value facts. I mean, my valuing something doesn't make it value. My believing something doesn't make it true. So My valuing something doesn't make it valuing. Some people seem to think that it's not just our valuing, because I, I could value anything, but things have to be worthy of valuing. And so if you can't objectively ground things as worthy of valuing, And values are just no big deal. What do you you think about that? Well,
1: I think you can't, let's take something like, not all things that are worth valuing are moral values. They're aesthetic values, they're epistemic values. But we're social beings, we're gregarious social animals. This is sort of the Darwinian message we start with, right? That's where my naturalism, uh, I prefer naturalism than materialism because it's uh, it's less reductive sounding or less scientistic. But the Darwinian accepts that we are uh, 100% uh, animals and uh, we have no special uh, uh, mental equipment, no souls. uh, And when we die, we're gone. And we're probably even not an eternal species. In fact, we're almost certainly not eternal as a species. So the questions are, are some values more worth valuing or do some things matter more than other things? And I think that's a very, very complicated thing. My overall idea would be that we solve those problems in conversations uh, with other gregarious social animals in complex social ecologies. So we are able to say things like, having certain excellences, like being a good and reliable and honest friend is something that humans have come to learn and discover over time is of great value to doing, being successful. John looks very unhappy here. Yeah.
2: yeah. Wait a minute. You guys, I mean, come on, torturing children, innocent children, right. uh, mm-hmm. the Holocaust. Oh. Well, you know, we just don't value that. We don't choose to value that. Are you really happy with that? Isn't there something about that goes a little bit deeper than human nature and the preferences of this group or that group or their conversations? There's something objectively wrong about torturing children. If you can't account for that, give up. That's...
0: That there is something deep to what you say, John. And this Thank is, you. This is one of. <laughs> is Objectively deep one of, one or subjectively one of, deep? One of, there's one of, Kierkegaard goes on about this. He's, the problem with, he doesn't call it naturalism, the problem with naturalism is that ultimately it rests our valuings on what he calls mere whim. We decide to value this today, and we could change that tomorrow. We could say, oh, the Holocaust is all right. Well, it's so and, you know. and, and he says that's just. That's not right. That's not good. And, and he thinks the only answer to that. Now, I don't know if I agree with him, but the only answer to this, the only way you're going to find a stable source of value and valuing is in God. So, so what are you going to say to Hitler if you
2: have the opportunity? You say, well, you know, I just kind of, you know, I don't groove with the
1: same values you have. I mean, uh, is Here, that
2: all you can say? Yeah, yeah is that so,
1: adequate? oh, come on. What, what here's you're... what here's one thing you can say. So, there's a. It isn't just say this; it's merely a preference or a choice. There's a great passage in this uh, classical Chinese philosopher, Mencius, uh, which is, uh, he's like Aristotle is to Plato, Mencius is to Confucius, he says this. Anyone, even Hitler, seeing a child falling into a well would immediately feel alarm and compassion, not because he wants to get in good with the kid's parents, not because he wants fame and fortune, just because that's the way we're wired. Now that's a way of using our nature as valuers, to say that we will have certain kind of constraints on uh, values and he, torturing kids will not be a contender value.
0: He, he got that idea from Hume. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're searching for meaning in a material universe. We're coming to you at Stanford University as part of our continuing study series, The Art of Living. And we've got a question from our audience of The Art of Living. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, ma'am.
5: Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Vera Kinehan, and... Um, What strikes me in in this whole discussion a little bit is that we limit ourselves with what we have proven with science. And I'm reminded of of, uh, Ernesto Sabato, Argentinian philosopher, saying that, um, you know, you believe that the the smallest fish is the size of the hole in your net. And there might be much more smaller fishes in, in the sea, but you just have not discovered them yet. And I have actually recently seen a documentary um, about Japanese scientists discovering that the water um, has feelings and um, that the water has memory as well. So what if those things are true? I mean, what if we're moving into some completely new assumptions which may change our meaning as well? Because if water has feelings, that affects us because we are 70% water. So I'm just saying, it seems like we're at the end of science here and, and that all our meaning is bound to what we know today.
2: So, so the, the Japanese and the Norwegians don't want to even quit killing whales. Now they're going to have to leave the water alone. <laughs> that, that's going to be tough.
0: No, I, I want to, but I want to press on something about science. You know, some people think that this crisis of modernity is largely driven by science. That it, not science, science disenchanted nature. Science showed us that we're nothing but hunks of meat. Science progressively destro- has progressively destroyed, well, you know, what Sellers called our manif- the elements of our manifest image, our, you know, persons, free, autonomous, conscious. You know, not everybody believes that all those things have to go, but many people believe those things have to go. So... Every, much of what we think is under this relentless pressure from science, John was saying in our opening he doesn 't think science can really help us form a new way of being. Science is about fact, not about value. Do you agree with that? Science only tells us matters of fact it can't help us reshape values well, I, you know
1: this is a I, I guess I do think that science can be helpful and i'm i 'm um, made optimistic here by some research that's being done by uh, not only psychologists, but a lot of behavioral economists who are now very interested in the way in which human well-being can be measured to a certain extent and how actually individuals make mistakes about their own well-being. For example, uh, people thinking that... uh, I mean, Daniel Kahneman says the biggest flat line in the history of economics is the increases in well-being after a family of four makes $75,000 a year. That's very, very important information that actually you don't add to human well-being. That uh, 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 Money gets you to buy more stuff. You get more stuff, but it doesn't add to well-being. Or findings like this, that it, the more social inequality is, there is, the, uh, even the people who are at the top don't feel as safe or as secure
0: or and as So good. I'm not quite sure what you're saying. Okay, so science can tell us a bunch of regularities in nature. Yep. Right, okay, and we take note of those regularities. Right. But this problem of constructing a narrative of life, a meaning, a way of being in the world... And we just say, oh, consult the guys in the lab coats. And oh, no, no, no. So, uh, so what's, I mean, yeah. what's the... Well, so my
1: idea there, what I was just suggesting is, we certainly wouldn't, first of all, I wouldn't want to assume, as the questioner uh, asked, that we're any place close to the end of science. It's just that a scientific worldview seems to have ruled out certain options uh, for certain kinds of narratives or stories. I certainly don't think, like Sam Harris thinks, for example, in his book, The Moral Landscape, that you can actually infer values from scientific information. I don't think that at all. I think given that we're valuing creatures, you can then use sometimes social scientific information, not certainly neuroscientific information. That's being overrated uh, right now. We're in an age of uh, extreme uh, you know, neuroenthusiasm. Uh, <laughs> but there's all the facts about the world, about human social relations. For example, the best predictor of well-being across the globe is the degree to which there are other people you can depend on. And in sub saharan Africa right now, Half the people think that there aren't people that they can depend on. And that's the best predictor of non-well-being.
2: But insofar as, as we think, as you kind of alluded to with Mencius and, and Hume, that human sympathy for the feelings and distress of others, we're discovering that in many ways we're more like the rest of the world than we thought. I mean, I was raised to believe that well, fishing was okay because fish don't feel pain. And I asked a biologist once, and he said, well, that... That would be odd, because they have, you know, they're on the same evolutionary line as you are, and you feel pain. I'm a little skeptical about water having feelings. But on the other hand, we know so little about consciousness. You're a professor of neurobiology. That Can we rule any of this out? So one way science can really undermine our values is by making us really, we think we don't even know what's happening relevant to what we care about. We don't know what, who, what. does that table feel pain? Well, probably not, but...
1: There, I mean, these are complicated questions. I think that uh, it, you know, sometimes you can rule out answers. I think tables and chairs. Let's, uh, uh, it'll be the end of the world as we know it if they end up having Felix. From what we know about the nervous, <laughs> not, from,
2: not not in cultures about nervous the floor, systems. Or well, or
1: <laughs> here's an interesting case. There are. A, this is related to the question about does science do this work for us? There are many other cultures. Like take in 500 BCE when Jainism and Buddhism broke off from the mother tradition in India. Uh, the Janes, uh, still to this day, go around with surgical masks and brooms mm-hmm. to avoid you know, making any sentient beings suffer. And it's an open question, what are the sentient beings? Right now, I think lots of, for example, moral vegetarians take it all the way down to uh, oysters and
0: clams and uh, scallops and things like that. And uh, below that, probably not. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're searching for meaning in a material world in front of an audience at Stanford University as part of our... Continuing study series, The Art of Living. And we've got a questioner. Welcome to Philosophy Talk.
1: Yes, thank you. My name is Mary. I'm from Palo Alto. And um, going on the premise that people want to feel safe, they want relationships, and they want to feel ultimately loved, do you believe that morality is an invention by people to protect what they value most?
6: and that is valuing life and all that comes with it, the love, the safety, the relationships.
1: Uh, I think that's an entirely plausible view, and it it actually cuts some distance. I mean, Ken asked earlier if uh, morality was completely subjective, and I would want to say, if there's no sentient beings, there's not morality, but it starts in the nature of the valuing beings. I heard a wise person say, humans are value mongers. We create value, or existentialists would say, we're thrust into the world as valuers. The basic things we value are things like life, comforts of various sorts, uh, friendship. Aristotle famously says, he says, when I go around asking everybody what they want, they all say, they all use the same Greek word, eudaimonia, they want to be um, have well-being. But he said, under no conception of well-being would a person choose to ever live without friends. That's interesting. That says right away that we're gregarious. That's a very
0: uplifting thought. <laughs> a very. And, and I do think that's where the ethical urge begins in our valuing of ourselves and people we hold dear but here's the thing here's the depressing things about human beings we've all lived through part of the 20th century not all of us lived through the horrible most horrible parts of it but it was a century of darkness in which the capacity of human beings to treat one another as garbage was manifest in great variety not just the Holocaust, I mean, World War II was an utter disaster, an utter disaster, but apartheid, the Stalin's gulag, all ethnic cleansing, Pol Pot, the ability to, of human beings to treat, and, and moreover, they treated one another as garbage under these grand narratives that were as exhilarating to some as the old uh, theistic narratives were. So I don't, I don't I mean like, like bringing democratic values to the Mideast? Well, so yeah, <laughs> right. So, kill a couple I hundred mean, thousand whatever people you wanna say about humans and their valuing and all that sort of stuff, the thing that gives us ethics also gives us that stuff. So what do you make of that? I think that's right. It
1: looks like um, the same things, that it looks like religious systems and moral systems create tremendous amount of in-group solidarity and at the same time create out-group animosities. Maybe we are becoming clear on that lesson. I sometimes am hopeful, but not always about learning world historical lessons over time and improving ourselves uh, based on the kind of things Ken talked about.
2: But one possible source for morality that goes beyond the merely subjective people's reaction to situations but doesn't quite rely on the supernatural is that there's a certain rationality that would give us... I mean, take, for example, the view that we tend to have in the West these days that women should be treated equally. Uh, and that's not a universal value. It's not part of the moral code of some right. parts of the world. Can we just say, well, you know, you know, when in Rome do as in Romans do? Or is there some rationality that can get within those moral codes, even though they're invented, and say some are better than others?
0: That's a really good question, and I think that's really a <laughs> deep question. You're asking lots of deep questions, but I, I do think... I'm not giving any deep answers. I, I do think from our perspective, we're, we're likely to think that movement toward us and our social configurations is a movement of of progress. But what if the old slave owners were around and the old segregationists were around right now, they'd say, that's a story of decline. I'm afraid, I fear that human reason speaks just in a cacophony of competing ends and what we call progress is just the dominant voice saying, "I, I, I doubt either of you believe that, but that's what I believe. That's what you believe or that's what you're pretending to believe? No, that's for the what not. I believe, that human beings speaks in a cacophony and not in the Kantian universal kingdom of ends mm. of all people.
1: Well, you know, the way I would be hopeful, I, I'm sympathetic with your concerns. I think about ethics or the, the ethical part of a good human life, which, again, isn't the only part of a good human life, um, as a part of human ecology and that different communities are trying to find their way uh, within the communities. We might get lucky because we live in these multicultural, cosmopolitan worlds. I'm thinking of cities like London and New York, for example, and San Francisco, where there are forces, ecological forces at play to help people recognize the diversity of humanity and be more compassionate, sympathetic, and understanding. But that's a hope rather than a, uh, anything I have great evidence
0: for. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're coming to you from the Stanford campus, part of the continuing study series, The Art of Living. We're out to discover the meaning of life with Owen Flanagan, author of The Really Hard Problem, Meaning in a Material World.
2: In our final segment, we'll cast an eye towards Buddhism. Some people believe Buddhism is more in line with modern science than Christianity. We'll ask whether Buddhism might allow us to have the best of
0: both worlds. Where Eastern religion meets Western science, plus more questions from our audience when philosophy talk
6: continues
0: welcome back to philosophy talk I'm John Perry I'm Ken Taylor our guest is Owen Flanagan from Duke University, and we're asking about the really hard problem, finding meaning in a material world. Owen, you've written a fascinating book about Buddhism,
2: The Bodhisattva's Brain, Buddhism Naturalized. Do you think Buddhism gives us the best of both worlds, the naturalism and objectivity we look for from science, and the spirituality we want from religion?
1: I'm not a Buddhist, but I was really interested in Buddhism and admire it greatly because By our standards, it's atheistic. That is, there's no creator God, there's no being who grounds morality or the meaning of life transcendentally, Um, but it's morally very serious. So I'm impressed by it. I'm impressed by it in the same way that maybe Ken is by the Epicureans, Um, and uh, I am sort of by Aristotle and Confucius. What I realized in studying Buddhism is that it's one of several, and two of them are living, the Confucian tradition and the Buddhist tradition, of non-theistic, morally serious traditions. So the answer would be a provisional yes. How do
0: we think of uh, Buddhism as religion? I mean, we in, the, we in the West think of religion as creator God and all that sort of stuff, but we do think of Buddhism as one of the world's great religions. Why not just a philosophical system, a meditative practice? Is it really a religion? Well, this,
1: is, this comes up sometimes among Religion experts whether it should be called a religion. I should say despite what I said about it being officially atheistic There are a lot of ghosts and spirits depending on your kind of uh, Buddhism So it isn't as if it's this is purely naturalistic. It's a it's a Especially in certain Tibetan forms. It's a lot of hocus-pocus as I put it Well, the, the 14th Dalai Lama the current one believes that he's identical with the 13th Dalai Lama the reincarnation
2: thereof he also, told me, a he, bit
1: too, he also told me that I was a reincarnation of the seventh Dalai Lama because I said that you just can't decide by definition that things like anger are bad. But, <laughs> um, but it was because of meeting the Dalai Lama. He invited me to Dharamsala where I went in 2000 to talk about destructive emotions and how to overcome them. And again, I, was, I, I love comparative philosophy and I, I, I recommend it to you all because... I've discovered that there are so many different ways of being human that are uh, worth taking seriously that don't all have the same belief structure. Uh, And uh, and this Dalai Lama is actually impressed by science. He said uh, in one of his books, but he's also said it in my presence, that he said, we Buddhists believe in rebirth. So this is a, you might say, this is a problem. They don't believe in God, but they believe in rebirth. They believe in sort of a justice ordering of the universe. But he says, if science were to disprove rebirth, we would give it up and we should give it up. Now, well, there you go. I'm sitting there and
0: thinking the Pope would not say that.
1: Well, there
6: you <laughs> go.
0: We've got another question from our audience. Welcome to Philosophy Talk,
6: ma'am. Hi, I'm Amy from Mountain View, and I want to use a word coined by a great philosopher, Stephen Colbert. So <laughs> we talk about truthiness, which is our <laughs> deep feeling that something is true, maybe in the face of uh, conflicting evidence. Are we substituting valuiness for... Values?
0: I am a person who believes that one of the great mistakes of, but it's hard to say this, of, of lots of philosophy is to think that our values have to answer to something yeah. independently of us. Yeah. I think of our values, well, they're our values. I value this water. Is it intrinsically valuable? No, it's valuable to me. Some people say, no, that can't be right. Things have to be valuable. And it's because of what John was worrying about earlier, right? What about the kid drowning the Holocaust? You can't just say, either I value it. It's something in it that commands you. I don't want to get on a hobby horse, but Dreyfus and Sean Kelly have this book, All Things Shining, yeah. right? They say, when you start thinking this way, this Nietzschean way and all this, you're going to get into nihilism. Because unless there's something that commands value from you, that you are responsive to... You're back into this Kierkegaardian thing. It's just a whim. So it's, I mean, truthiness is a thing that reg- we want to regulate our beliefs. And some people think, well, valuing valuableness, we want to regulate our values by what's valuable.
2: Now, there is a long tradition. I mean, some people think Hume fits into it. I don't know. Uh, of, of trying to uh, say ethics isn't so bad off because it's not objective because, come to think of it, our beliefs about the external world aren't all objective objective either, you know, what we take the external world view, how we organize it into things and events and even people and continuance may be constrained around the periphery, but there's a lot of
1: give and We could call that the Colbert point of view. What, what do you think? So I think that there is this view of uh, that morality has to be completely different from a theory of prudence um, because uh, it's more serious, and I think there's something to the idea that morality is more serious. But I tend to think that you have to give up this I- if you give up this idea of there being objective values independently of the kind of sentient beings we are. Um, you're going to have to say that, that there's a continuum of values, and some things that we say are objectively wrong. What we mean by that is. There are almost no ecological situations in which we can imagine them being justified or sensible for achieving the normal and uh, ends of human beings. Um, but uh, it deflates. I think the, the kind of naturalism we were talking about today deflates morality to a certain extent. Welcome to Philosophy Talks here.
7: My name's uh, Gordon. I'm from Palo Alto. Uh, it seems to me people have a range of values that we all have been experiencing and are have in our heads and that we can have primed and made available at any given moment some of these values to the detriment of others. Uh, one thing psychologists know and one thing Danny Kahneman and others have shown repeatedly is how much priming there is in our social uh, environment, and from other people in a personal environment, that influences the choices that we're going to make in any given moment. And often people are completely unaware of what has influenced their behavior. If you ask them, they will give you rationalizations and intellectualizations about it, and the intellectualization and rationalizations tend to sound plausible <laughs> But we know, having just done some manipulation of their prior history, that we have influenced the way they've uh, made choices uh, without them knowing it. You seem to give an awful lot of weight to rationality and the conscious mind of people making up their, weighting their decisions as to how they're gonna go one way or the other. And as a psychologist, I'm more convinced that people get influenced and in an unconscious way.
0: I'm so glad that you're in the audience, Gordon, and I'm so glad you said that because, again, I want to go back to the science of mind, of which you are one of the leading practitioners, that we have these views about ourselves as self-conscious, reflective, autonomous, self-governing things, and you probe into the real dynamics of the human mind and you find that this story we tell about ourselves and how we work, this philosophically articulated, defended thing, doesn't seem to match the facts. Doesn't seem to match the facts at all. Uh, one of the earliest people, I, I don't want to sound like I'm pumping Nietzsche too much, but one of the other earliest people that take that thought seriously is that we are full of confabulation and false consciousness was Nietzsche. And he wanted to destroy these confabulations and false consciousness. And modern cognitive science is doing a pretty good job of doing it empirically and systematically. So, I don't know what that means. means Maybe we have to start over? I, I don't know. I, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? It means right. we should
2: quit funding psychology, which is just confusing us, and, <laughs> and, and fund philosophy, which is trying to put things on a so new foundation. We, what
0: do we do? What do we do? We've well, got all this work in psychology that shows these stories we tell about how the rational autonomous mind works, are you know probably well not you
1: see i guess i do think since i've worked in philosophy of mind for a very long time and i'm i'm well aware of these uh, results about our uh, confabulationism if that's a word the the idea is that look at what we're all much more sensitive to now ever since darwin is not only the fact that we're 100 percent biological beings that doesn't mean we're at the end of inquiry or the end of science but we know that much about ourselves that we're just like the rest of nature. We also know a lot about ourselves as being heirs and heiresses to historical traditions which are utterly contingent. I remember as that little boy who was put under the who was told to go under the desk in case the Soviets were about to bomb us in New York when I was in elementary school, and then they were going to hold guns to my head and make me give up my religion after I somehow survived the nuclear attack. Well, anyway, but (laughs) the main point was that I got right then that if I had been in Russia, I would have my teachers telling the story the other way around, and I realized then the utter contingency. Now, maybe I was precocious, but the main point is, we're all much more aware now that we're psychobiologically and historically fragile beings, and our values are largely given to us without our rational consent, and that should make us more humble. And well, that, so I think that's an important. Should make us more humble. Should make us more humble. Welcome and, to Philosophy Talk. Yes, right.
6: Hi, thank you. My name is Hannah from San Jose. If, if there is no God and we're in a material world, then. You know, we're trying to find our meaning that way, and I, I'm coming sort of to this question in my life. And it seems like you're saying the meaning. You, you know, each person makes their own meaning, and a lot of that can be found in the interaction with people, as you know, we're gregarious, you know, beings that uh, value friendship as a component, a necessary component of well-being. What happens to a person who, let's say, if, if this person is um, like the last person on Earth, or if this person um, for whatever reason, you know, has lost all of, maybe he's not the last, per, he or she's not the last person on earth, but uh, he or she has lost all of their family, and how, I mean, what would you say as a philosopher to them? How would they continue to make meaning? Is it part of just their biological drive to keep going and living? What if they lose that, you know, that desire to live? How How I, does that work? I think
0: you're, I think, again, I, I think we're getting into some deep territory, because let's let's, But religion, the the Abrahamic religions anyway, I don't know about Buddhism and Confucianism, but the Abrahamic religions, one of the cool things they do is they have a narrative for you that in times of trouble can comfort you, uplift you, give you direction because they say there is a loving, benevolent God behind all this. And he's got a plan, and that plan isn't just a plan for the university, but it's a plan for you. And you can take comfort in that. You can feel uplifted by that. And all, these, all this science destroys all that stuff. And we got all these kind of... We got some things that try to replace those. There's, you know, the proletariat, the march of capital, all the, none of those, none of those. Holds a candle to the as a narrative of human life to the power of this now vanquished religion. So,
2: so what does Buddhism and Confucianism give us instead of that?
0: Well,
1: here's some thoughts about this. First of all, there's a lot of research. in my, my view of life is that the best of all possible worlds is where the good, the true, and the beautiful come together. It's very platonic. But <laughs> sometimes they don't come together smoothly, and there's a lot of research in psychology uh, about positive illusions, and uh, people don't always like to know the truth. Now, you might just say this carries over to what Ken was saying and you were suggesting, that we like to believe that the world is just. That's in Buddhism, too. You see, you get a lot of lives for the universe to pay Mm -hmm. you off, even though there's no God (laughs) orchestrating it. Uh, There's the idea that uh, everything happens for a reason. And, uh, And I think that these might be sort of commonplace positive illusions. And the other quick thing to say is that being the last person on earth would suck, because... There isn't that much consoling. It's interesting, again, though, to go to Aristotle and the Epicureans. Aristotle says you can't tell whether a person flourished just by his or her subjective states when he or she dies. You have to see how the grandkids work out. Yeah. And that's a sort of, again, an aspect of the kind of creatures we are. We care about what happens in the future. How far in the future? D- interesting question, I don't know. Welcome to Philosophy Talk.
8: <laughs> My name is Valentina Nesci, uh, and I am from Mountview. View. Um, So actually I'm a Catholic who kind of converted uh, into Buddhism and how it happened was that um, what I didn't like about Catholicism is you can do whatever you want that's wrong in a way and then just confess your sins (laughs) and so you know I can steal something and then I'm so sorry that I stole the sharpener oh yeah say Hail Mary and then it would be fine but with Buddhism uh, I felt like Uh, you are really forced to take all of that away and you are stripped in a way of all the conveniences and the stories that religions tell us and you have to really see what's left and what's left is yourself and other people and when you there's something miraculous that happens when you look at someone else in the eye really see them and when you look at yourself or when you just live in the present moment and really feel it that to me is the meaning of life is something that is not necessarily given by religion or even by science, but by looking at what we have around us and really taking it in. So I just, I was wondering, what do you think about that?
0: <laughs> You're the expert
1: in Buddhism. No, that's, a, that's a, a lovely testimonial to, I think, again, uh, appreciating the different ways and different motivational structure that different great world wisdom traditions have. I totally agree with you. I, I took a, a great deal of advantage of the fact that you could confess your sins <laughs> on. Uh, on uh, Saturday, uh, Friday night we'd go to, uh, yeah, well we'd do some things and then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, the yeah. motivational structure was not much about me reflecting, I just learned stuff that I was the do's and the don'ts, I confessed them and got on with it, and uh, I was very good about the differences between mortal and venial sins and which ones would get you eternal punishment, and
0: yeah. It oh, was, and this has been a, a fascinating uh, conversation, I'm going to thank you for joining us. Our guest has been Owen Flanagan from Duke University. He's author of The Really Hard Problem, Finding Meaning in a Material World. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ken. So, John, what are your thoughts now?
2: Oh, my thoughts are about the same as they have been for the last uh, 65 years since I got old enough to worry about this problem. Uh, maybe there's meaning out there, maybe there isn't. Maybe Buddhism's better, but maybe not. Maybe I just don't know enough about it. But when I'm hungry,
0: I eat, and I I would pull a kid out of a well. (laughs) (laughs) I would pull a kid out of a well, and I would murder Hitler if I had a chance. But, you know, I am pretty convinced that meaning isn't out there in the world, and if we go searching for it, we're not going to find it but we shouldn't despair because we put it out there. But then I do wonder about this thing, which meaning, which values? And how do, we, how do we establish that these are the values? I think this is a huge, massive question, and I do think science challenges us always to reshape and reform it.
2: Well, one idea from Buddhism, which you don't just have in Buddhism, is this idea of living in the moment. And there you often don't have much question. There's not room for question about what to value. Do you value a warm day? Yes. Do you value the smile of a child? Yes. Are you irritated by the cry of a child? Probably.
0: So. This conversation continues on our blog, the where our motto is, "Cogito ergo blogo." I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter, and you can also find out more by visiting our very active Facebook page.
2: Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University,
0: Copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Special thanks to Liz Frith and Azeen Massoudi. Thanks also to our philosopher of sound, Dan Brandon, and our philosopher of words, Crystal Nickerson. The program is produced by Devin Strolevich, Laura McGuire is our Director of Research, our Director of Marketing is Dave Millar, Corollo Carola Kreitner is our Performance Consultant.
2: Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of
0: Philosophy Talk, and from the members of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed
2: on this program Do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or
0: of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.